0: Take your Bibles for our Bible study this morning and join me in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. As you're turning, I want to share with you that when I was preparing this and thinking, there was a historical setting that came to my mind that this passage reminded me of. There's um, a famous Portuguese sailor who was an explorer of the late 1400s, early 1500s. Those of you who had gone with us on multiple different missions trips, one of them anyway, to Portugal, you probably remember those two pictures. Remember the sites that we saw that are on the left side of the screen. There's a huge statue right by the harbor in Lisbon that has uh, all these different characters who were famous explorers. And then when we went into the cathedral, just across that parking way, we went in and there was the tomb of Vasco da Gama, who was a very famous individual. First one to go around Africa all the way and explore and open up the, uh, the roadway, the seaway to the idea of the Far East. And so you have that individual who's buried in that cathedral. Now, he wasn't the first one to go to the south of Africa. The fellow who did, his name is there. And uh, I'm not going to even try to pronounce his first name. That just won't work. But Diaz had already gone down the south, uh, to the south of Africa. And he ran into the, the ocean down in that area that was just you know, very stormy, very treacherous because of it was being so far south. And when he was all done, he had come back and what he charted was calling that the, the Bay of Storms or the Cape of Storms. Well, when Vasco da Gama went through, he went through that same stormy area and opened up everything in India, and he renamed that region, and that's the name that it is now, the Cape of Good Hope, because his idea was, even though there's storms and there's all kinds of treachery, on the other side there's good hope. That's exactly what we feel like as born-again believers, that we go through life that has a lot of storms, but there's something that has good hope at the very end. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 talks about. In fact, the book of Revelation is kind of that same thing. It gives you, for the first part of the book, all kinds of stormy situations, but then it gives you the good hope. And that good hope is found, especially in that last part, two chapters, that I mentioned already. And I want to read a portion of that, and then we just want to talk about some of the things that they reveal. But before I read it, let me remind you about something about the book of Revelation. That as you're studying it, keep in mind that God said, write the things that shall come hereafter. The idea that God has is he wants us to know the future. He didn't mean to hide it from us. He doesn't want us ignorant of it. He wants us to be aware of what the future holds. In fact, John, when he's recording, and think about this, we'll come back to it in a few minutes, when he's recording the visions, the, the images that he's seeing of, say, 2021, John is writing in 95 AD, and John is going to struggle with how does he describe things that he's unfamiliar with? How does he describe, what would he use for terms if he saw vehicles and planes? that they didn't have in 95 A.D. And so in the book, there's a lot of like or as and symbolism. Don't let that challenge you or scare you away. Understand that as you go through, that John is describing earthly events, especially in the latter days. And as he goes through the book of Revelation, he talks about the area of the tribulation. That's seven years where Antichrist, the mark of the beast, Armageddon, all those things that you've heard about that you might read or even Hollywood suggest or uses the terms anyway. After the tribulation period, then John talks about the second coming of Christ, chapter 19. Then he talks about what's happening after that, the millennium, a time when Jesus will rule on earth for a thousand years, a kingdom on earth. That's in chapter 20. Then he talks about the end of that, Time there's a rebellion against Jesus, and then there's the great white throne judgment. Then there's the destruction of this heaven and earth, and a creation of a new heaven and earth. That's all described in this book, and especially in chapters 20 and 21 and all. But and as we before we read them, as we think through, keep this in mind these aren't imaginary, these aren't Hollywood, these are real events. This is exactly what God said is going to come to pass. Chapter 22 he says it must shortly or soon, quickly when it starts, come to pass. The idea is that he said that what I'm telling you, it's faithful and true. Those are the same two words used to describe Jesus Christ. In other words, the end of the book that he's recording here is as reliable as Jesus Christ is reliable. Jesus, who tells the truth. Well, this is being spoken truth. In fact, this portion of Scripture is as reliable as any of the Old Testament prophecies that told us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that he would then later on be crucified between two thieves, that he would be pierced in the side. All of those came to pass, and he says, even the Lord God of the holy prophets of old, that same person, God Almighty, he's relaying this information about the future. And so the idea you and I have is this information, this study of this book, it is as reliable as anything else that God has inspired. It's true. It's accurate. But before I go any further, I want to just encourage you. God intended revealing the future, and he did it accurately, but he wants it to be revealed to all of you. He didn't leave it so that only a select few can understand the book of Revelation. It was written to his servants. That includes you. God's intent wasn't to to say, okay, only the clergy can understand and read and study the book of Revelation. Or you shouldn't ever study it. You need to come running to me, and I'm the only one that can interpret it. That is not what God intended. God wants you to study it. He's given you the spirit of God. If you're born again, you can understand it. It is something that you ought not to be afraid of taking it and examining, exploring it, studying it. Some of you are doing home Bible studies. Some of you have said you're doing Bible studies with one another or friends. Listen, if you like I'll give you materials, I'll give you some books that will be helpful, but don't be afraid of examining the book of Revelation and discovering the truth therein. It is a wonderful book. It is an exciting book, and it especially ends up with good hope. Let me read a portion of what we want to talk about this morning. You follow along as I start in chapter 21. I'm using a King James Bible. You follow in whatever you're using. Starting with verse 1, "...I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea." I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. He shall be my son. But the fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jump down towards the end of the chapter. I'm going to pick up in verse 22. I saw no temple therein, For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night." They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of uh, of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there." And they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. There it is, a description of what the future holds for us. The future in heaven. And so I want to explore and examine it. Give us a few details about eternal heaven, eternal earth. And here's one of the first things that stands out. One day in the future, that future new heaven, new earth, that's all there's going to be. That's all there is. What I mean by that is this. That what we know here on planet earth, what we know in this creation, it'll be no longer Starts off in chapter uh, chapter 21, verse 1. It's referring to this heaven and this earth as we know it, that they're going to flee flee away. We mentioned last week, that could be, and I think it is, the fulfillment of this passage from Second Peter. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works, everything is going to be burned up. Verse 11 went on, all these things shall be dissolved. And we mentioned last week is that as the idea... Jesus, who according to Colossians 1, is holding everything together, does he just release all the atoms? And we have this huge atomic explosion. I don't know, but I do know this much, that when people today talk about global warming, they have no idea what global warming really is. Okay. In the future, everything's going to be destroyed by fire, everything that we know. This planet, contrary to what some people think, this planet is not going to be where we spend all eternity. Now, yes, will it be the home of the thousand-year kingdom? That's true. But this is not going to be where we live for eternity. God's going to take it and destroy it. Now some of you might be wondering. It's said in the passage that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. And there will be a new heaven and earth. Does that mean God will destroy the place where he abides right now? What about the heaven where he is? Please understand this. When you read and study your Bible, when it talks about heaven, there are three different heavenlies That are meant, that are referred to. Sometimes when it talks about heaven, it talks about what we see in the sky today. The forecast coming from the heavens is rain today. That's our stratosphere. That's the clouds around us. That is at times what Scripture calls heaven. Then there are other times when he refers to heaven, he's talking about the solar system, all the different constellations and the universe and everything beyond all of creation beyond where we can see at this moment without aids of, a, of technology. Then there's the third heaven, in fact he calls it that in Corinthians, that's where God abides. That's the spiritual heaven that will one day unite with the physical, but that is the heaven where God dwells. When he talks about the heaven and the earth being destroyed, a new earth and a new heaven being created, he's talking about the physical creation. He's talking about this earth, the skies around us, and the universe with the stars, the suns, the planets. He's not talking about God's heavenly dwelling place. And so everything that he talks about is going to be destroyed one day. That day is going to be during that time, or right about that time of the great white throne judgment after the kingdom on earth when God now is judging all the people of all ages who are especially focusing on those who did not accept him as Savior and then he's going to go into eternity with the new heaven and earth. So we're talking about that future time after the millennia thousand years and then that's when he creates this new heaven and new earth talked about in verse 1. Now in addition to that let's make this comment. It's going to be brand new. It's not like the millennial kingdom where he renovates, where he revives this planet earth after the tribulation. This is entirely new. This is going to have new car smell for a long time. Everything new, the new creation as we know it, a new earth, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem. It's all brand new. Even what we read, I will make all things new. He's talking about creation. So it's going to be all brand new. Also, what he described in the passage that we read, that during that time and in that place of the eternal heaven, the eternal earth, we're going to have unparalleled fellowship with God. Something that that people have never experienced to a closeness with God that is absolutely amazing and beyond our description. He says in this text, On a couple occasions, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. He, will, he himself will be with them. Isn't that interesting? Right at the beginning of describing heaven, that's going to be his emphasis. And in this verse, twice he makes the comment, God is dwelling with them. Now, understand something, that word tabernacle, some of you who are Bible students, you immediately went back to that idea of Old Testament tabernacle, Old Testament temple. It's an entirely different word. The word used that it says, the tabernacle of God would dwell with men is the private dwelling place. It isn't the worship center. It is God's private dwelling place where he says God will personally be very near man. And again, I mentioned that this is absolute. It's mentioned twice. It's at the very beginning. The point is that people will be very close to God like never, ever before. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are there. They shall see his face. Hold it. Hold it. What does Scripture say about people seeing the face of God? If any man saw the face of God, they would surely die. Well, so what's this? Is it a contradiction? Absolutely not. Think this through. That when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they experienced some walking and talking with God that is more than what we've experienced in this lifetime. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden, they, before they sinned, They all had this real close communion with God. But after they sinned, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. They were used to walking with God. They were used to the voice of God walking with them in the garden. All of a sudden, because of sin, that's going to change drastically. And it's been staying that changed drastically until the new heaven and new earth. But they had a real unique walking with God. There's another guy that's, right, that's an Old Testament hero. It's Enoch. And Enoch's talk about walking with God. Do you remember the rest of this phrase? Enoch walked with God and then... Oh, he was not. He was taken away. He had this closeness to God and God said, Hey, come home with me. He didn't go through death like we do. One of the rarities in Scripture. Talking about being close to the Lord... There's a guy in scripture who he who's heroic, Moses. You all know the story of Moses. Moses in Exodus 33 is on the mountain talking with God. And when he's up there, he asks God for a personal favor. Because I have served you and I've done these things and given the commandments and led these people, will you please do me a real favor? Do you remember what he asked? Let me see your face, your glory. And God responds to him after he asks, and and by the way, this all fits together in the passage, the Lord spake to Moses face to face as a man speaks. It's just the idea that they had a real close friendship. But when he asks after that, can I see you? Can I see your glory? God responds this way. While my glory passes by, he says, I will cover thee. The, the, The part that's missing, I'll put you between some rocks, like in a cave, and I'll put my hand over you, and after I passed by... I will remove my hands so you can see my backside. And so that's what he allows Moses to do. And Moses sees the back parts of God, and God had said, because if you could see me in all my glory, if you saw, you would die. By the way, do you remember what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain? Do you remember what, he, what happened to him? He is radiating so much the glory of God is shining upon him that all the people say put on a veil, put on a veil because you're, you're, you know, you're too bright for us so those guys had a unique experience that, that is unparalleled in our, in our life but as you think this through we've already mentioned God's invisible, God's an unapproachable light if anybody got, would see him they would die exposure to him and yet, he says in this text, there's a coming a time, when you who are going to heaven, you're going to see God face to face. For that for the first time in creation, it is going to be real. That real close to God. Where it fulfills the, the, the comment of Jesus, the pure in heart shall see God. In other words, we're going to be so close to the glory of God, so close to the brilliance of God, so close to God face to face, that it'll be like something people have never experienced before. Even Moses, even Adam and Eve. It's going to be amazing fellowship with God. It'll be the ultimate experience for you to get that close to God. Amazing. Now that's what he's talking about. And in addition to that, well, let me, let me pause. Let me, let me give you the illustration. Last year when uh, the elections were going on, do you remember them? Okay. Okay. The nightmare is still existing. Okay. The, uh, you know, the residue of it. Do you remember when, um, and I don't remember if President Biden came at all into the area, but I do remember that they announced that at the time President Bush was going to come and visit the area. And I don't, re- if I'm not mistaken, there wasn't a whole lot of head up notice about this. And yet thousands of people flocked to the Hershey Stadium to see him. Why? They wanted to see the president. And people were excited, and even though COVID was there, and not not everybody could get in, people were thrilled just to see Air Force One. People were thrilled to see what's the name of the helicopter? Thank you. Okay, people were all excited. You know, I saw the car. Okay, when there's a celebrity, somebody important, we get excited to see them. Can you imagine how thrilling it will be to see God? To see God, the Creator. The ruler, the one they just sang about, God of all ages, wow, amazing. It's going to be just, just un, un, unfathomable how great it will be. Now with that, let me add something that this text tells you about. That God's glory, his brilliance, is going to absolutely permeate everything. You know, like we mentioned about Moses seeing God, that when he saw just the backside of God, all of a sudden he was aglow. You know, in this sense, this passage tells us that God's presence will set everything aglow. Look at, look at what we have in chapter 21, verse 11, talking about the city of God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto the stone most precious. Where did the light come from? God's glory. Look a little bit further in the text. Look down in verse twenty-three, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine. Why? The glory of God lightens it. Jesus, the Lamb, is the light. Look at chapter twenty-two, verse five, where he says, "There's no need for night there. There shall be no need night there. There will be no need for a candle, neither light. Why? God Himself gives them light. And so, God's glory, God's radiance." Do you remember in the Old Testament there was glory of God when all of a sudden he came into the temple? The Shekinah glory? The brilliance that sometimes when people would see an angel who reflected the glory of God, they would fall down as dead. Amazing. Amazing. Now think about this. The disciples at times only saw part of Jesus in his glory. Most of the time he looked like typical person. But there was a few occasions where Jesus, while he was ministering or shortly after he went to heaven, he was revealed in some of his glory. For instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration, his raiment became shining, exceeding white so that the fuller, the one who was dying clothes, so that he couldn't whiten their clothes anymore. Uh, One of the others wrote, he says, his countenance was altered. His raiment was white and glistening. To get a little bit better of a picture of that, later on Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul at the time he was Saul, not saved yet. And it says when, he's, when Saul is sharing his testimony at about noontime, which is the zenith, the height of the sun, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light that was even brighter than the sunshine. He says that later on, at midday I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. In fact, when John is writing the book of Revelation, he says his countenance was as the sun shining in its full strength. Okay, when we have a sunny bright day, when summer eventually shows up, whenever, okay, you're not going to go out there and say to your kids, hey, stare at the sun. You're not going to do it. Why? Why? it'll hurt your eyes, okay? You're, and even when it's a bright day and you want to look towards that direction, you're covering, you put on your different sunglasses, you do. You can't handle it. Can you imagine in heaven, this is what God is doing. God is showing in his full glory and brilliance, it'll permeate everything. It'll, if, if we're kind of like Moses, we, we'd have a tough time, you know, I'd look at Jim and it would be, hey Jim, turn it off, Okay? It's going to be this light, but it won't hurt us. Why? We're going to have our resurrected bodies. Our bodies will be adapted to that atmosphere, our eyes included, so that we won't have the damage. But it's going to be absolutely brilliant. By the way, with this new heaven and new earth, there are some similarities to the things you experience here on this earth. They're the same thing, but different. Some of the similarities that are talked about in this text is like space matter. Space and matter. When when we talk about this new heaven and new earth, we're talking about a physical creation. We're talking about something that is solid. We're talking about ground. It'll be a new earth, new ground, and it's going to be physical. So don't be mistaken that when you have the idea that somebody tells you when you get into eternity, we're just going to be all spirits and we're just kind of there's there's nothing concrete. That's not true. This text tells us there's going to be matter, there's going to be physical substance, there's going to be composition. If we had vehicles, if we haven't been at that time, which I don't know and you don't know if we do or don't, if we have vehicles, there there are going to be vehicles. If we have tables, they are going to be tables. There's going to be such things as real cities, cities that have walls, cities that have doorways to them, cities that have real streets, but a whole lot better. I mean, the city that he talks about, we'll spend more time. There's going to be population center, at least one. Kings come from other regions around the world, so maybe they have capital cities as well, but it's a city. Typically today cities scare us because well maybe they don't scare you. Okay. (laughs) Crime, ghetto area, there's poverty, but not in this city not in the future. There won't be any of the negatives. There's going to be streets. In our modern day in Pennsylvania, our streets are nearly perfect. Okay? So we're having streets, but they're going to be a whole lot better in in heaven, right? There's going to be gates. There's going to be doorways. There's going to be government. And right again we say our government is perfect. (laughs) Okay, right? No, but there's going to be government. There's going to be a throne. There's going to be multiple kings. There's reign. In other words, you know, when God puts things together, God, He's done this ever since creation. God is not the author of confusion, but of orderliness. And so God has orderliness in heaven. In other words, there's government. People aren't going to do what they want to do all by themselves and go off on a tangent. That won't happen. God is in control. God is ruling. There's going to be social arrangements. Do you know that twice in this text it talks about nations? So I don't know how we're divided. I don't know what the makeup is for the social organizations, but there's nations. The ultimate nation is going to be Israel. And by the way, in the future, everyone will get along with Israel. Okay, There will be perfect Middle East peace. In this, in this era. There's a river. There's a river there. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. It talks about at least one river that's coming from the throne of God. And as a result of the river and the vegetation, it says, for the healing of the nations. By the way, the word healing isn't implying their sickness. The word healing means sustenance, just for the ongoing upkeep. And so there's also going to be fruits and vegetation. We know that they're there. Oh, and by the way, when he talks about the fruits and the vegetation, he says that it's going to change how frequently is the vegetation, the fruit changing. Every month. So in other words, there's marking of time. So there's time, there's space, there's matter. All of that we're familiar with. And then this is just going to be so much better. But with that, there are some things that are going to be different. There's going to be things that aren't there. The text talks about no more, no more, no more, and lists more of this negative than does the positive. And some of it you are going to be excited about when you read it. Some of it you're going to go, wait, I don't understand. And probably the one that gets more people to go, uh huh, really, is this one No more seas. Those of you who love the shore go, oh, heaven without a beach? can't be. I don't exactly know what all of these details are, but I want to remind you where I started. When I started this, I said, you need to be uh, when you read the scriptures, you need to understand, especially in this book, that John was writing in what year? Approximately. Around 95 to 100 AD, okay? And he's writing about things that, from his understanding, I I don't think it's a stretch. What John perceived about the oceans is a whole lot different than what we perceive about the oceans. Okay? What I mean by that is this. John in his day, when they talked about the open seas, when they talk about the oceans, were they looking forward to a cruise? Yes or no? No, not at all from John's perspective and the people of that era of time, the oceans were scary. They were dangerous. They were a threat. They were creation at its worst. Because if you sail through the pillars of Hercules, out of the Mediterranean, you're going to do what? You're going to fall off the edge of the world. There's going to be monsters that are going to wipe you out. The oceans represented... Something scary and fearful. In fact, even in the Mediterranean, do your research of the ancient Near East. They didn't typically, typically go across the Mediterranean. They went around the coast. That was typical travel all the time. You hugged the shoreline. Why? Because the open seas... Sca- they're dangerous. They scare people. And so from his perspective, he understands that the oceans divided people. They limited people. They, they cut people off. They, they territorialized people. They didn't have much in common on people who lived. So by saying no more seas, look at it from a, at the perspective of a 100 AD man. People will no longer fear creation. That, that isn't a dangerous place anymore creation isn't bad for us anymore. There's no something, there's nothing there to, you know, there's no boogeyman in the ocean anymore. People are going to be united. People are going to have plenty of space and lands for all the people who are living in that time period. And we know water is the source of life. Well, does that mean if there's not as much water on the new heaven and new earth, there's a different form of sustenance? I don't know. I don't know. But he goes on. He says there's going to be no more death, nor sorrow, nor pain, nor crying. This one we got. This one's easy for us. It means no more heartaches. It means that we're not going to have illnesses. It means there's no more funeral homes. There's no more death. There's no more tragedy that way. No more loneliness. No more guilt. That's all eradicated. And what he's implying is we're going to have peace and joy all the time. What he's implying, perfect health. What he's implying is everyone's going to have eternal life. I remind you That in the previous kingdom that was on the renovated planet Earth, that millennial kingdom, there was still some death. Very rare, but it did happen. That even a a man who died uh, 100 years old, he would be called a child. And even during that millennium, there are some who rebel. Not in this future. Eternal kingdom, uh, eternal heaven and earth. It's going to be harmony between everyone. And in this text, he says, I'll wipe away all tears from your eyes. This is when it happens. This is the reference, is right before the new heaven and the new earth, right before eternity, he wipes away the tears of all eyes. What's he mean? And why the timing of it at this moment? Well, obviously, the end of all disease, the end of all pain, the end of all death, that is going to get rid of all those tears. Thumbs up to that one. That one we understand. I mean, some of you even got up this week, this day, and there was tears. Some of you have gotten news that caused tears. Some of you have have, thought about a loved one that you miss. There's tears. In that time, in that era, no more tears. Because of physical problems, emotional challenges, discouragements, defeats, or death, it's gone. I wonder. I don't know. I wonder how this ties in after the great white uh, throne of the great white throne judgment. At the throne of the great white judgment, which happens just before this new heaven and new earth, at that time is when all people who have lived but not asked Christ to be their Savior. They rely upon their baptism. They rely upon their church. They rely upon something or someone to get them to heaven, but not Jesus Christ. That judgment of those people takes place at the great white throne. We talked about that last week. We will be there as believers, aware of what's happening. Maybe some of our loved ones. Maybe our kids, grandkids, ancestors, neighbors, co workers, classmates. Could it be we're moved to tears seeing that they end up in hell? I don't know. I don't know how that all works. But I do know that after this, there is no more tears. Which says this to me that says, This heaven is a place of great comfort and great hope. The ultimate comfort and hope. That which we need. I was reading an author who was talking about a friend of hers who's doing a Sunday school class in the inner city of Atlanta. I don't remember the author's name, but I do remember that as she told the true story that was just a couple years old, that her friend, by the name of Joy, is teaching a Sunday school class. And in this Sunday school class, she works with some kids who come out of the ghetto area in in Atlanta. And she's just a wonderful teacher. The kids get along. They love her class. They love her. But here, a while back, she got a new girl that came. Somebody brought, somehow, through a bus ministry or something else. But this little girl by the name of Barbara showed up. Barbara, as she found out, had a really difficult background. She came in a wheelchair. And it wasn't because she was paralyzed or anything, but she had been beaten by her father to the point she needed to be in a wheelchair for an extended period of time. This girl had been suffering physical abuse, sexual abuse. She's just a small girl. She's probably about 11 years old. And this little girl, when she first came in, she, they brought her to the class And Joy tried to talk with her, but she would not talk. She wouldn't even make eye contact. When she came in, she only kept her wheelchair by the door as if she wanted to escape any moment. The other kids are gathered in the class, and they're interacting with Joy, and they're having a grand old time. And Joy would look up, and Barbara would glance once in a while, just look up once in a while. And then as the weeks went by, this little girl became a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more secure, and she moved her wheelchair a little bit closer, but never said a word, never interacted with anybody until the day that Joy gave a lesson on heaven. As she was giving the lesson, Barbara moved her chair closer and closer and closer until as Joy was teaching, all of a sudden, there she was right there by her elbow, staring up, taking in every single word about heaven and when joy finished the lesson she says anybody have a question and for the very first time there was physical contact that all of a sudden barbara pulled on her sleeve miss joy is heaven for a place for for a little girl like me this little girl who had nothing who had no hope by hearing about heaven gave her the hope and wanting to know could she be accepted in heaven? The answer is, absolutely. There are many people, some might be listening, some might be sitting here, who feel rejected, who feel isolated, who feel afflicted, abused, and you wonder, is this life all there is? Uh Uh-uh. Heaven is ahead. Heaven is ahead. And this heaven is a place of great comfort It's a place of great health. It's a place where we will understand how God is operating and why he does what he does fully and clearly beyond what we do right now. It is going to be a wonderful place, a place where there's full acceptance and understanding. But I want you to see something else. There's not only no more pain and heartache, there's no more temple. Now John is writing in a time period where temples are very important. Temples are a part of worship. It's kind of like us today. Church is very important. It's part of our our way to worship. It's it's part of our makeup of, of getting together with God and talking even though we know we can talk to God at any time. We can pick up his word and he can speak to us at any moment. This is still important. So when John says there's no more temple, what's he mean by that? He means that no more do we need a place or a spot where we used to make sacrifices to get forgiveness of sin. There's no need for any more sacrifice. There's no need for us for forgiveness because there's no sin. There's not going to be any... Now, during the millennium, there is still some people making having to make sacrifice. We will make it in memory, but others will be making it because some will sin during the millennium who are birthed during that time period. They will be rare, but it's going to happen. Not in the, in the eternal stage. We come here. We come here at times. Or we go to the temple and say, please make intercession for us. No need for that. Because we won't have any trials and temptations anymore. There's, no, there's not going to be a busyness in our life that is so overwhelming that we get so busy with work and school, we forget about God. Not in the eternal spot. God will be a part of our life, interacting with them every day. We come here sometimes. Some of you come because this is a haven. Because everything at home, because everything at work, because other people, other, other people you go to school with, they mock, they ridicule, they give you a hard time, or, or your spouse does, or whatever. And this is a haven. This is a place where you can come and get recharged and encouraged. It's not going to be needed because we won't have those difficulties. We won't need to be our, get our charge, our, our battery recharged. We won't need a refueling center. We, we don't need a spot where we can focus on God uninterrupted. We don't need that. We don't need others to stand up and speak for God. When we get into this heaven, I, I'm not needed anymore in heaven to explain God. You can talk to him face to face. What a wonderful aspect that is glorious. Now, let me ask you this one. You're living in 95 AD, and you are trying to relay to people an idea, and you say, no shutting of the gates of the city. What does that mean? For us, I mean, who's going to shut the gates of Lebanon? Who's going to shut the gates of Hershey? Who's going to shut Ono's gates? Gate. Okay. What does it mean to somebody living in 95 AD no shutting of the gates? What's that? No fear? Peace? Yeah. Okay. The gate is to keep out enemies, undesirables, animals, you know, things like that. There's no shutting of it. It means that, I mean, why do you lock your car? Oh, maybe you don't. (laughs) Why do you lock your house at night? Okay. Yeah. In heaven, there's no need for locking the doors. Yes! I won't be looking for lost keys. I won't have any of them. It's going to be no crime, no war, no harmony between everybody. The Arabs will get along with the Jews. It's going to be amazing. Total access to God at any time, no shutting of the gates. Amazing. Amazing. And then he says no need for the sun and moon. We read that already. It's not saying there isn't a sun or moon. I don't know if, if there is. But there's no need for them. Why not? We need the sun for life because the light, you know, the, the vegetation needs it. Who's providing the light? God is. God is. And so God, Jesus, will provide all of that that, you know, he's the source of warmth. He's the source of nourishment that we need from the sun. He's it. Uh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. We're not going to have any kids waking up at night in heaven and saying, I'm scared. Okay. Okay. It's not going to happen. You're going to get a full night's sleep. Amen. Okay. So we have all of this, and then he finishes it. No more curse. No more curse. Woo. That means there's, sin is all gone. That means consequences of sin are all gone. That means no negatives in creation. That means great productivity in what we do. That means no weaknesses in our bodies. Now some of that has been experienced by some people during the millennium, but now it's the millennium on steroids. Tremendous. A dad was tucking his little boy into bed, and he, he, the little boy Sunday school class talked about heaven, and the little boy was all excited to talk, and dad's dad wanted to follow up and say, okay, you know, so you've been thinking about heaven. Yeah, 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 yeah. He says, so what are you going to do when you get to heaven? Now this isn't theologically correct, Okay. But the little boy got so excited, he threw off the cover, started jumping. He says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ride the biggest and best of roller coasters, and I won't be afraid, and I won't get sick, and I'm going to slide down the rainbows, and I'm going to be able to float from cloud to cloud, and I'm going to do this, 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 and he's talking about all these things that he's excited to do. And dad looks at him and says, are you going to have any pets in heaven? Oh, yeah, I'm going to have a T-Rex for my very own. Okay, the kid's theology may not be totally correct, but his attitude is. He's excited about what heaven hopes uh, holds for him. And when we hear about it, get on with it, Wayne. <laughs> heaven is a thrilling place. It's an exciting place. So what do we do with what we just talked about? We'll pick up more next week. What do we do with this? Let me just make these, this thought. Number one, heaven is real. It's, it's a sure place. It's an absolute place. It's really physical. Fiz- there are other people that you can read, go online. Some of you in your universities or schools, you're hearing these other thoughts. Think it through. If some of what they're saying is true, you got to go, really? What hope is that? For instance, for instance, Buddhists, Hindus, New Agers, they talk about your heaven being reincarnated. You might start as a worm become a person. If you did bad as a person, you may go back to a cockroach. Okay, Or you might come back as something really, really good like a cow. Okay. I, I'm not being silly. I'm, that's what they write. It sounds silly but that's what some of, this, some of their writing is. I look at that and go are you kidding me? I'm going to be thrown in a recycled can over and over and over and over and over Spinning wheels in a fallen world, and that's heaven? That doesn't give me much hope. That doesn't thrill me. Okay? Then you have others that come along. And they say, hey, you follow us, and you can have all the girls you want for all ages. You can live. And some guy gets thrilled. I can't imagine what that means for those poor girls from their perspective. That doesn't sound like heaven, like the New Jerusalem. That sounds like Las Vegas on steroids. Okay, That doesn't seem like this is what heaven's about, is self-gratification and just lust heaped upon lust. Really? Then you have others who say, oh, there is no heaven. When you die, you're done. I, I, this is me. This is, this is my foolish mind. I look at when my kids were born, watch them grow up. I see my grandkids. I, in my wildest dreams, cannot comprehend the idea that this is all there is. When they're dead, they're done. I just can't. It just strikes me as, wow, hopeless. Hopelessness. Yeah, you have a better word. You use insanity. We use the word stupid. Okay? Then you have this. Then you have... The Mormons who teach this, that heaven, if you, if you achieve heaven, you will become a God, man, and with all your wives, they will be perpetually pregnant, bearing children. I need to just stop there and say, ladies, okay, really? Okay, and what you do with all those spirit babies you, you create, you are going to train them, teach them, Develop them. When they go to your planet that you make, you have to manage them and oversee them and make sure that they're what they're supposed to be. (sighs) (laughs) Let Let me put it this way. Grandkids are better than kids because they go home. Okay, I don't have to keep all night with grandkids except for my choice. So I look at this and go, boy, that sounds like a whole lot of work. That's. And then you have what Jesus teaches. You have Jesus, who is truth. Okay? Jesus' teachings real place, real people, creatures, peace, beauty, comfort, growth, fellowship, orderliness, productivity, activity, perfection. I want that one. That one's real. And I encourage you, don't miss out on it. Number two, let me wrap up with this thought. It's far better than what you can imagine. Even though there's some similarities, it's far better than what you can imagine. Far better than anything you know. Hey, let me illustrate. So, during this past year, I was driving one of my old cars, 200,000 miles on an old Buick from the 90s, driving it. And I got tired of no horn, no wipers, using oil, guzzling on gas. The seat, the seat uh, coil spring was broken. Okay, and so it was, okay, let me get a different used car. I got the different used car. I don't miss the old one. I don't miss it. We lived for 30 years across town on the other side of the tracks. We had a house that was 3 bedroom. Okay, one bath, raised the four kids in there, okay, and my wife and I. As soon as the kids moved out, we got a different house that has multiple bathrooms. (laughs) I got to tell you, even though we lived in that house for 30 years, I don't miss it. I don't miss it. I grew up in Little Falls, Minnesota, and in 1973, this church, First Baptist Church, did an outreach reached my family with the gospel. I went to church there, got saved, got baptized there, got called to the ministry, and I enjoyed that church. It was pivotal in the foundation of my life. Some dear friends really ministered to me who are now with the Lord, some older folk and uh, adults at that time, they're with the Lord, and I have fond memories but I don't miss it and one of the reasons I don't miss it is because of you you have been such a blessing over these years you have become our family that even though I look back and say that was nice this is so much better so much more thrilling so much more fulfilling the same thing is true about heaven he even says in scripture For behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former will not be remembered nor come to mind. For those of you who say, no, beach, it won't make any difference. It'll be so grand, so glorious, you aren't going to miss Wildwood or Atlantic City, okay? It's going to be grand you don't want to miss out on. In fact, look what he says. He's talking about a man caught up into the paradise, heard unspeakable words, couldn't even describe it. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of your house. You shall make them drink of the river of your pleasures. He goes on, he says, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them. He goes on, he says, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Heaven is beyond anything we can imagine. You don't want to miss out on it. Here. It's forever. It's forever. Hey, you know, you know, some of you have thought this week. This week is forever. Some of you have had a toothache at night. This thing will never go away. Some of you have have had to you know, deal with a person. They're around me all the time. Some of you are sitting here right now. He won't shut up. (laughs) This is forever. This is going to last. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, they shall remain. This isn't just a a few days. This is for all eternity. You don't want to miss out on it. But I need to warn you. I need to warn you, if you don't do what's required by God to enter into this heaven, you'll end up in hell. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know, I'll go to purgatory. There is no purgatory in the Bible, there's nothing like that. Oh, I'll go to limbo. There is no limbo. In the Bible, it's either heaven or it's hell. Jesus made it very clear there's no other options. So you want to make sure you do what God requires so you get into heaven. And let me tell you, He doesn't require to look good, to give money, to go to church, to be a good citizen. All those things are neat and good. But they don't get you into heaven. Baptism doesn't get you into heaven. Confirmation doesn't get you into heaven. Knowing the Ten Commandments doesn't get you into heaven. He says that his requirement is wrapped up into this. Look at the end of verse of chapter 21. There shall in no wise enter into heaven anything that is continually defiling, works abomination, or keeps on making lies, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You have to make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you get your name there? It's requiring that you need to ask Christ to be your Savior. That you realize Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Him. You need Jesus to give you forgiveness. And only He can do it. No preacher, no church, no denomination. Jesus is the way to heaven. The only way. Do you know Him as your Savior this day? If not, why don't you ask Him? Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and as we come to the Lord in prayer, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and here you are this morning. You are not sure you're headed for this wonderful heaven. Well, you can be sure. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. That's His promise. His promise is that He will forgive if you repent. You could do that right now. You could sit as you're there sitting in the pew, you could pray and ask Christ to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. Admit you're a sinner. Recognize that He and He alone can give you eternal life. Ask Him. Because He died, buried, and resurrected, He is the one who can give you eternal life. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and before I pray, if you have further questions, If you have further concerns and you want to make sure that you have that reservation made in heaven, then in a moment while I pray, why don't you get up from your pew and go to the right side of the auditorium where we have some people standing by an open door on the right. They will take you into a private room. They will show you from the Word of God the prayer, the sense, the intent of a prayer you need to make so you get into heaven. You want to make sure. Why don't you do that right now while I pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us the opportunity to hear about your plan of forgiveness. Thank you for Christ making it possible. Thank you that somebody came and shared that truth with us. Thank you for your your promises of what heaven holds. Help us to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be incentivized to get out and tell others. Father, thank you for revealing this truth to us this day. Bless the remainder of our day, and especially as we celebrate with family and friends and others this weekend, remembering the sacrifice that military folk have made for our benefit. Help us to remember as well the sacrifice Jesus made so we can be in heaven one day. We love you for it. We thank you for it. Give us a great weekend. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless.